that last that last line it gets me every time um that soul although hell should endeavor to shake and oftentimes it feels like that in this life doesn't it that uh, satan's bringing all he's got against us what does jesus say i will never no never forsake um, what hope what what great hope that is for us uh, i would encourage you today uh, to open your bibles to luke chapter 11 we'll continue our study there Luke chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 26. I just stuck my hand in my pocket while you turn there. I have a marker here. Uh, in Sunday school, we realized today that it's a good thing I don't have to write anything at any point during the sermon or you would get none of it uh, because my handwriting is terrible. Uh, but I would encourage you, just, this is a good reminder as you're turning, if you're not participating in a Sunday school class, I would really encourage you to do that. Um, we have several options and we could discuss those, but... Uh, it's really a great time of fellowship. It's a great time of just getting to learn together. And so I'd really encourage you uh, to take part. Um, we started today, uh, actually Bradley started it last week, just a little Sunday school class on the uh, infant baptism. And so if you have questions, if you're interested, we're going to finish that up next week. And so we'll have a little discussion there. But really my plug is more for Sunday school than it is for that. So I really would encourage you to be a part. All right, Luke chapter 11. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger... Then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, uh, the, the truth is, is the passage before us is one uh, that is so uh, relevant to the, your church today. Uh, it's one that is so needful for us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in a mighty way. Uh, Lord, we need you to do that. Uh, we need you to open our hearts, uh, to, to get past the, the icy veneer that we so often raise. Uh, even now, even as we enter into your, your presence, uh, Lord, uh, the things of this world distract us. Our hearts are sinful. They, they rage against you. And so, Lord, uh, draw us in, uh, bring us close to your side, and help us to see Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Whose side are you on? Well, I'm sure that most of you have seen, and maybe some of you even have, 
uh, one of those car tags that says a house divided, right? Uh, now, the idea there is maybe uh, one side has Auburn on it and the other side has Alabama, or maybe it's Florida and Florida State, or, of course, in, in our particular case, it might be Mississippi State and Ole Miss. But the point is, uh, is that whether it is a husband and a wife or parents and their children, uh, whether it's just among siblings, the, the rooting interest for a particular school in that household is divided, right? I'll be honest, I've often wondered just exactly how that works. Uh, I guess to, to some degree, Bruce is shaking his head. <laughs> I guess to some degree or another, I, I grew up this way. My dad is actually an Ole Miss fan, and my mother and I are Mississippi State fans, but he really is one of the few people that I have ever known who is gracious and kind enough, who really can root for both sides without any animosity, without any hard feelings. I am not that person. I did, I did not get that gene, uh, but because he is that way, we've been able to make it work. Uh, but, but what if you had two people that were like me, uh, two people who were not willing to give ground either way? Uh, it, I'll be honest, it seems like it would uh, become a rather delicate situation very, very quickly. No matter what side of, of victory, whether it was victory or defeat, no matter which side you found yourself on, if you said too much, you might find yourself on the couch or in the doghouse. Uh, it really seems that if that kind of thing persisted, uh, that the house might just fall, right? Now, I, I hope that we can recognize that that is a silly example. And I hope, I hope I don't have to actually say this, but I'm going to say it because I feel like I need to say it. I hope we recognize that that football or allegiance to a school should never become such an idol in our lives that it divides us in any way much less in our homes but but I begin there because in the passage before us we find the source of that divided house imagery right in verse 17 here uh, Jesus says every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided house falls now, what we're going to find as we kind of unpack this is that what Jesus is addressing is really the question of his ultimate allegiance. Some have called into question just exactly where it is that Jesus stands. And we're going to see how absurd their argument really is. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make with the illustration that he gives. But, but what I really want us to take away from this and what I really think Jesus is ultimately driving at uh, is, is I want us to see that when it comes to spiritual matters, as Ben has already rightly point, pointed out, whether it's good and evil, whether it's heaven and hell, whether it's God and Satan, when it comes to those things, there is no middle ground. There, there is no playing both sides. As he says very clearly, very pointedly to us, we are either for him or we are against him. Now, I want to drive this home, so I'm going to repeat it one more time. All of us, even now, we are definitively on one side or the other. We are with Jesus, or we are against him. The question is, is which side is it? Which side are you really on? Well, that's the question that's before Jesus. And that's the question that is before us this morning. So let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see in this passage 
is a question of allegiance. A question of allegiance. We said that's what got all of this started, so I want you to see it there in verses 14 through 16. Now, all of this begins uh, with a short, a very short account of Jesus uh, doing another miracle. He's healing this man. Uh, and obviously, this is not necessarily the heart of this passage, but it's interesting to note here the connection that this gives us to all that we have been studying over the course of the past few weeks. You remember, Jesus has given us the Lord's Prayer, and he's been teaching us how to pray. And now, in some ways, it seems like Luke has just gone completely off course, right? That he's completely changed gears and he's gone another way. But notice, what is it that the man in the story is unable to do? What, what effect is the demon having in his life? He's mute, right? He's unable to speak. In other words, he is unable to do the thing that God has created him to do which is to open his mouth in praise of his Savior. He is unable to rejoice in what God has done for him in his life. He is unable to praise the Redeemer that is right standing in front of him because the forces of Satan, this demon, are closing his lips. Now, that's important for us to to recognize here uh, because we need to see that that in all of our lives, that's Satan's goal always. His goal always is to close our mouths, is to make it that, that we can't fulfill the, the creational order that God has given us, to praise him and enjoy him forever, whether it's temptation that he brings into our lives, whether it's doubt and fear, whether it's troubles, whatever it may be, his ultimate goal, whether we go to his side completely whether we just straddle the fence, whether we live in doubt the rest of our lives, his ultimate goal is for us to stand silent. It's for us not to address God, for us to pray to him, for us to worship him. That's one commentator says, this man cannot do, he cannot say the words of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus has just given here. That's what Satan wants to do in each of our lives. But notice here, what what does Jesus come to do? Well, in verse 14 there at the end, after he has healed this man, it says that the mute man spoke and the people marveled. In other words, Jesus loosed his tongue, a tongue that was once content to to curse this Redeemer, a a tongue that was once content to, to speak by its own rules, to play by its own rules. A tongue once mute now has been loosed. And friends, can you imagine in that moment how he must have praised his Savior, how he must have praised Jesus? Friends, if that's true for this man, who simply was freed from from demonic possession, as great as that is and as amazing as that would be to all of us, how much more should we praise our King and Redeemer? He has not just freed us from demonic possession, but he has freed us from the power of Satan completely. He has freed us from sin and death. He has freed us from the bondage that is ours, that we read about in our catechism question this morning, right? That original sin. He has he's washed it clean. Not only the original sin, but the actual sin in our lives. He has taken it all so that now we may praise him. <laughs> In all of our lives, here, everywhere, our mouths may be open to speak his praise. And so before we move on from this little short passage, I want to say to you, go out and let it rip. 
If he has opened your mouth to praise him, and that's exactly what he's done, then friends, there should be nothing holding us back. Go out and praise this one who has done so much for you. Go fulfill that creational order that he has given you to enjoy him forever, to praise him and enjoy him forever. Do it in every aspect, every part of your life. Go and praise the king. Now, with that said, as is usually the case, when Jesus does one of these great miracles, uh, there are people present who are not convinced, right? Uh, They're not convinced about Jesus. In fact, uh, there are those who, who want to question a lot of different things. And what I want you to see here is that the, it, they kind of fall into two camps. And that's usually the case. Uh, when, when they come to Jesus and they begin to doubt, it falls into two sort of camps. First, you have a group that is completely antagonistic against him, right? We might think of the Pharisees. We might think of the scribes. Uh, these are those people who want to call into question Jesus' character, They want to call into question his motivations. And specifically here, they want to call into question his allegiance. Look at what they say there in verse 15. They said, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that term, Beelzebul, which is pretty familiar to us, it finds its roots all the way back in the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to the land of Canaan. And over the course of time, it had come to take on maybe the demonic powers in the world. And now here, finally, has actually come to be a name given to Satan himself. And so the implication is clear, right? What they're saying of Jesus is that he is simply a tool in the power of Satan. Now, it sounds blasphemous to even say out of my mouth, but that's what what they are implying about our Lord. That, that, all, that he's able to do these things, not in his own power, not in the power of God, but because he is a servant of Satan. In other words, they are accusing him of blasphemy at the highest level. Now, we might think in our world of atheists, you know, staunch atheists who would accuse Jesus this way. We might think of other religious groups who would accuse Jesus this way. But you have this antagonistic group. They're completely against him. But secondly, and maybe more relevant to us, notice there's another group. And we might just describe this group as skeptical. They are unsure about Jesus. There in verse 16, it says, While others, to test him, that they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. These are people who are not necessarily willing to, to completely reject Jesus and what he has said, They're also not willing to commit to him fully either, right? They they want to wait. They They need more proof. So they say, Jesus, give us another sign. Give us something that will prove to us that who you are and what you say is actually who you are and what you say. Give us some authority here. They want to see more. They want to test him. Now, as we look at these two groups... I think our temptation is to think that clearly one of them is worse than the other, right? We look at these two groups and we think that group that has completely rejected Jesus, that somehow they're probably worse than the group that is simply skeptical. And maybe on some level, just future progress, maybe that's true. But what I want you to notice here and what Jesus is really trying to drive at is in the end... There is no difference between these two groups. There is no difference between the group that is completely against Jesus 
and the group that is just simply skeptical about Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because what do neither one of these groups walk away from Jesus with? Faith. Neither one of them leave him trusting in him as their Lord and Savior. Yes, one has shown them their hand clearly. They have said, you know what? We're done with this. We don't think this guy's a liar. He's doing this by Satan. They have shown their hand. The other group, though, they're, they're just kind of playing the middle ground. They're doing dodgeball, right? They're out there in the middle just trying to play on the line. And uh, maybe, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, uh, but we need more proof. We'll just wait and we'll see. Now, friends, uh, I say this to you with complete um, seriousness and with a heavy heart. I'm afraid it's that second group that we need to be careful of in our churches today, that we need to be careful of in the church in America. Uh, there's certainly people who will flat out reject Jesus in this world. But for the most part, what we find is, is that people are just skeptical, right? If they're not willing to go all in, they're, they're just, they're just kind of skeptical of him. I remember several years ago, we did a study with the kids. It's an R.C. Sproul study, and most of you have probably seen it. Uh, but he goes around to college campuses. He, it's filmed in the early 90s, so it's kind of cheesy. Uh, but he just goes around to college campuses, and he asks he ask that question, who do you think Jesus is? And certainly there were some who were like, ah, I mean, they react like the Pharisees do. They had an antagonistic group. Uh, but for the most part, people were just skeptical. They were just saying, I'm not sure. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. I'll, I'll see. Later on in life, I'll figure it out. And what was scary about that and what was sad is they were very content in that skepticism. They were very uh, uh, happy to be there. It didn't seem like there was any urgency. It didn't seem like they were like, hey, i got to go figure this out right now. It was more like, hey, in the future at some point, maybe, maybe I'll think about this Jesus thing. Maybe I'll figure it out then. Friends, the problem is, is in that moment, their closeness to Jesus, however close they may have been growing up, their, their relationship to Jesus, whatever they may claim to know about him, the fact that they have not outright rejected him saves them none. It does no good for them. It gives them no faith in him. And so you see here that, that both of these groups, whether skeptical, whether antagonistic, they find themselves in the same place. And friends, if you're here today and, and you find yourself in that skeptical group, you've been coming maybe for a long time, maybe you're just not sure, maybe you're trying to figure it out, I really want to encourage you to see how Jesus continues this story because if we have not driven it home yet, the truth of what he's saying, he's going to do it in what comes next, okay? So we've seen a question of allegiance, but secondly, we see here a strong defense, a strong defense, and you see it in three parts. First, there, he kind of, in verses 17 through 18, he shows these people the absurdity of the argument that they've given, the absurdity of what they've said, that he could possibly be doing this at the will of Satan. He says, a house divided again. If I'm doing this by Satan's power, that eventually Satan's going to fall. I, I, you can kind of see him approaching the people, right? Like, all right, let's, let's get this straight. If I'm doing this in the way you're claiming, if I'm undoing the very work that Satan wants to do, then it's not going to take very long before Satan's just going to implode, right? A, a country in civil war 
is not going to stand for very long if that civil war persists. And so he says, this, this is crazy. This would be like um, if you watched the national championship game two weeks ago. It been like Georgia saying, hey, we were trying to help Alabama out when we got that last interception for a touchdown. It's crazy, right? That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Their argument is absurd. Secondly, he wants them to see that it's also inconsistent. It's inconsistent. What you find there in verse 19 is that apparently there are some among the Jews, among the Pharisees, who are claiming, or maybe they are, able to cast out demons in the same way that Jesus is doing it. The issue is that when they are able to do that, how do the people react? They say, oh, the the hand of God has come near. God is working in and through this person. Look at the miraculous way God has blessed us by working in this, the, the life of this person. They rejoiced. They rejoiced at what God had done. But now Jesus says to them, but when I do it, the exact same thing, what you're saying to me is that it's actually Satan. He says, these people will be your judge. If they are doing it by God, then what right do you have to claim that I'm not doing it by God? And so their, their argument is absurd. It's inconsistent. And we can pause here just long enough to say that that's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is it is absurd and it is inconsistent. We know the truth in our hearts because God has revealed it to us in nature, in ourselves, of who he is. And so to revolt against him in any way is absurd. And it's inconsistent with what we know to be true. So it's worth pointing that out. But the third thing that you see here is that Jesus shows them the true reality. And again, he does it sort of in two ways. He does it in that allusion there uh, to the Old Testament in verse 20, and then he does it really well in the parable in verses 21 and 22. So in verse 20, he says, if the finger of God comes near, if he's done this by the finger of God, uh, if you know your Old Testament, that's an allusion back to Exodus. You remember when uh, Moses is, is doing the plagues, when the plagues are, God's doing the plagues, but Moses is there before Pharaoh. Um, uh, originally, at least for the first few, the magicians of Pharaoh are able to copy them, right? Uh, but it, it gets to a point where they can't do that any longer. And what do they say? They say, well, the finger of God has done this. It has come near. It is by the finger of God that these things are happening. In other words, we better pay attention. We can no longer do this. We can no longer repeat this. This is beyond us. This is God himself who is doing it. Well, Jesus is trying to say the same thing to those who are skeptical. He's saying, if this is the finger of God, if I am indeed doing this by God, then what does he say? The kingdom of God has come near to you. And so you better listen. You better pay attention. You don't need any more signs. You don't need any more proof. This is as much as you need. The kingdom of God has come close. This is the reality of the situation. But then finally, he drives it home there in that little parable in verses um, 21 and 22. And I'm going to read it again because it's, it's worth it. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now, let's pause there. Who's the strong man? It's Satan, right? I didn't say this, and I should have, but that term, Beelzebul, it literally is translated a mighty man, a mighty warrior. So who's the strong man? 
It's Satan himself. And notice what he does. He has this armor. He guards his goods. He tries to keep those things that are his close. And what are the things that are his? If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, he's the prince of the air, right? He wants to keep those souls that are not Jesus's close to himself. Whether that means we're fully committed to him or not, he doesn't really care. He just wants to keep us away from Jesus. He wants to keep us away from redemption. He is, as Peter says, that line that is prowling around, ready to jump on us at any moment. Now, I say that not to scare us, not that we should take Satan overly serious, but we need to see the reality that he is a strong man, that that, that is who he is, and he wants to keep us in some way. But what does Jesus say next? This is where it gets good, right? He says, but when one stronger than he, stronger than the strong man, when he comes and attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides the spoil. Who's the stronger man? Well, what just happened? What did Jesus just do? He cast the demon out, right? Clearly, Satan is no match for him. The stronger man is Jesus himself. He attacks the strong man. He comes in. He, he, he comes in and he divides the spoil. He breaks his armor, right? And how does he do it? We know because we stand on this side of redemption. He does it at the cross. It's there that he strips Satan of every accusatory word he might throw against us, right? He's that great accuser that prowls around. Well, now he has no words to throw against God's elect because Jesus has come and he's died in our place. He stripped death of its power so that it no longer reigns over us. He's freed us from the power of sin at the resurrection. He freed us. So that we no longer have to fear, but we can look to that time where we will be at God's right hand along with him, right? Where we will stand there in the throne room of God and we will worship. The stronger man comes in and he rules the day, right? He comes in and he kicks the door down. He comes in and he storms the gates and he wins the victory. That's why I started today, I hope you noticed, Uh, with our call to worship there in Isaiah 42, right? What did it say about God there? That he's victorious. And now we see it. We see the reality of it in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, Satan is still active to some degree or another in this world. And yes, he is able to act in our lives to some capacity. But friends, his destiny, his end is sure. Jesus has sealed it. He has won the day, and all who belong to him, we now, even now, stand victorious. Friends, this is great news. This is great news. As we come to the graveside of someone that we love, as we face trials in this life, as we're overcome, it feels like, by sin and guilt, what is true? They will not win the day. Jesus has won it. He is the victorious king. We can put our hope and our faith and our trust in him. This is the great news of the gospel. But it leads us to the question that is the question of our sermon today. Yes, this is true. And yes, he is victorious. Don't doubt it. It is true. The question is, is whose side are you on? 
The, the battle lines are clearly drawn. There is two sides, as Ben has told us. Two sides. There is Satan's side and there is God and Jesus' side. And the question is, is which side are you standing on? That leads us to our third and final point. We've seen a question of allegiance. We've seen a strong defense. And then thirdly and finally, we see no neutral ground. No neutral ground. You see it there in verse 23. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Some will reject him. They will call him a liar. They will call him a lunatic. They will say he can't do those things that he claimed to be able to do. Friends, they have chosen their side, right? They have clearly chosen their side. Some others, by faith, and hopefully that's all of us here today, that is my prayer, by faith we will cry out to him in repentance. We will look to him as our king and our redeemer, the only one who can save us from the reality of who we are, from the guilt that we have. We will confess that he is indeed Lord. And again, we will choose our side, right? But what about those skeptics? What about that group that, that is unsure? What about that group that, that's showing up to church, that's going through the motions, but they're still looking for one more sign? They're still looking for just the least bit more proof. What about for them? Is there a middle ground? Friends, the truth is, is they have chosen their side. There is no middle ground. There is no place of neutrality. There's no safe haven for you on the sideline. It is Jesus or it is nothing. Let me say that to you again. It is Jesus, not you, not your family, not your parents, not anything. It's Jesus or it is nothing. No middle ground. Those skeptics, they are lost. There is no hope for them in eternity until they put their faith and their hope in Jesus. Friends, we may think, and that's the point, we don't have time to really unpack it, but there in those little verses in 24 through 26, we may think that somehow we can clean the throne of our hearts up, that somehow we can make ourselves clean, we can drive out all the sins and the temptations, we can overcome them ourselves. Maybe we can think that we are the ones who are in control. That, that even worse, maybe we sit on the throne of our own hearts. Friends, if that's true, if that's what you think, then let me tell let's see what Jesus says here. You are in grave danger. Jesus makes it clear that is not true. That we cannot sit on the throne of our own hearts. That even if we clean ourselves up as clean as we can be, what happens in the end? The, the fall is even worse. There's only one person, one who can sit on the throne of your heart and give you any hope, give you any surety. And that is Jesus. He is the only king of our hearts. If he is not on the throne, then friends, the the options before you are clear. You can't sit in the middle ground. It's only Jesus. If you're here today and you've been waiting... If you're here today and you're looking for another sign, if you're here today and you think, I'm just going to put this off until the future, friends, can I encourage you? Can I implore you? If you're here today and you flat out rejected Jesus, can I, can I implore you, please, 
Consider what he says here. Consider the reality of your life. Consider what it is that you face in the future. Consider where it is that you're headed. Elijah says it in that great passage in 1 Kings 18. People are are torn between Baal and the real God. And he says, how long are you going to go on limping between two opinions? How long are you going to try to sit on the fence? He says, if God is the real God, then go believe in him. If Baal is the real God, then go and believe in him. But there is no middle ground. You can't do both. Friends, God is saying that to the church today. He's saying it clearly. There is no middle ground. And so I ask you, will you today, will you get off the fence? Will you fall at the feet of this Lord? Will you fall at the feet of this Jesus? Because the truth is, is there is no one more beautiful. There is no one more worth following. There is no one who will treat you better, who will love you more, who will get you safely home. No one other than Jesus. So will you worship him today? Will you look to him as your Lord and your Redeemer? As we pray together. Father, we pray that you would have us all look at our hearts and ask ourselves the hard questions. But we don't preach this to to build doubt in us. The truth is, is if we have put our faith in you, uh, then Lord, there's no reason for doubt. You have given us the sweet assurance. Only Jesus can save and he saves completely and he never lets us go. And so if we have done that, then Lord, there's no reason for us to doubt. We may need to, to turn back in faith to you. We may need to repent of our sins. But the reality is, is we, we, once our faith is rested there, and Lord, we have that sweet assurance, but Lord, the truth is, is there are many, your, your word is clear, there are many on that day who will say, Lord, didn't we do this in your name, and didn't we prophesy in your name? And you'll say, I didn't know you. And so Lord, have us, have us ask those questions, have us consider where it is that we stand. And Lord, if for whatever reason we have hesitated, if for whatever reason we are waiting for, for something else to, to come, help us to see that you have shown us clearly, without a doubt, the truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have shown us who you are. There, there is no other place we can look. There is no other sign we need other than what we have right here in our hands in your word. Lord, how we rejoice. For those of us who know you, how we rejoice in the beauty, the beauty of Jesus, knowing him, resting in him, the one who is the victorious king, the one who has stormed the gates and kicked the door down and has won the victory on our behalf. Lord, help us to rest in that truth. And as you've opened our mouths, help us to go out into the world and to spread that great news. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.